Lord Almighty, we give you glory and we praise you and uh, thank you for the opportunity to come once again before your word. Thank you, Jesus, that we get to celebrate you and bring glory to your holy name so that we can rejoice, so that you will be glorified and your kingdom will grow. Amen. Lara Croft, I am sure, is unfamiliar to most of you. She was a fictional character introduced in 1996 for a very popular game series called Tomb Raider. And it actually has much of what is wrong in the entertainment industry in our current society. But be that as it may, she is a famous character symbolizing... This idea that women can be genius billionaire fighters. There you go. Laura Croft, as I said, most of you won't know her. And I, I, was, I actually was toying with a different introduction, but I thought if the crowd was 20 years younger, I would have done it. But oh well, it's all right. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Hopefully you'll catch why I picked... Uh, Laura Croft as I get into the story. But, but she is, if nothing else, a fighter. She is one who is out so that she can win the prize, so she could beat the bad guys, so she could show girl power in a very real way. Paul of Tarsus is also a fighter. And this idea that Jesus and Paul and these other people were these meek and mild people who just kind of floated through life. It's completely false. Completely false. I mean, Paul went toe-to-toe with the quote-unquote most important apostle of all, Peter. Paul was no pushover. And I, I make the analogy, and I hope you'll see why in a little bit, but in part because they're both passionate about what they're doing. And if nothing else, Paul is passionate about standing against those who would get in your way of finding Jesus. Paul is willing to go toe-to-toe with anybody who wants to prevent people from getting close to Jesus. And that is very important in what we're going through in Romans today. And as we come to Romans, I want to express one of the difficulties in preaching through Romans. One of the difficulties in preaching through Romans is that it is such a tightly argued piece of literature that when you are trying to come to terms with a preaching portion, because I can't preach the whole book of Romans. I already did that last fall, and you all sat here for 55 minutes while I read it. That was fun. I'm not going to do that again, though. And so I have to come up with a preaching portion. And, And what's hard about that is what was immediately before that is absolutely critical to understanding the portion you want to get to now and understanding what's going to come next week is also absolutely critical and and where this line ends and you know you're thinking oh do I preach two chapters at once you got to just preach small bites because we're used to watching movies like Lara Croft which is by the way in the theater right now I don't expect most of you to see that either As I have said, Romans 1, 18-320 is a 
unit. And Paul is making one big point with as many subpoints as he makes. I'm not saying he's not making subpoints, but he's making one big point. And that one big point is that every mother's child deserves God's wrath. We are unrighteous. And as I've said, we've moved from the absolute debauched person to kind of the good moralist that you would love to put on a church committee. And now we're getting to the point where Paul is really digging under the fingernails of the people that he's talking to. And now he is going to make the case that Mere external observance of the Old Covenant is not enough. That's the, big, that's the whole point of what's going on. Paul is really getting in the face of the Jew that he's arguing with back and forth in Romans. And he says the Old Covenant, mere external observance of the Old Covenant will get you absolutely nada. Here's our passage tonight in one sentence. Intellectual knowledge of God's demands is necessary, but not sufficient to please God. External conformity to the law is not so important as internal conformity that is accomplished through the (coughs) cutting away of our sinful heart by God the Spirit. Let's see if I can show you where I get that in our passage tonight, starting in Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Paul writes, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision a matter of the heart. But the Spirit... By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. As you heard this morning, in my words, you cannot muster enough consistency. You cannot give enough sacrifice. You cannot have enough knowledge or Sunday school attendance to save yourself. You can't do it. And Paul is saying mere external conformity to whatever law you want to name, but specifically the Mosaic law, will never be enough. You and I can only please God by submitting to spiritual surgery. 
My friends, God the Spirit must open up your chest and cut out your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, as Ezekiel 11 puts it. And that is where we come to in Romans 2, starting verse 17. Paul says, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, he's talking here about the Mosaic law. That's not always true in Romans, but here it's pretty clear what he's doing. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will, which you will if you go to his word, and approve what is excellent, again, read his word and you will find out. Because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, if all these things are true of you, this is preface to where he's going, but we see that as we get to these points, all of them should be true of you. You should know God's Word well enough to understand His will. To approve, to know His will and approve what is excellent. You should be instructed in the law. Now, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. But many of you have been in church longer than I've been alive. Many of you. You should be instructed in God's Word. And I know that many of you are. I'm not implying that you aren't. You should call yourself a child of God. You should know and approve what is excellent. You should be instructed in God's moral demands. You should be one who is willing and able to instruct the the foolish. And listen, these are not idle words. The author of the book to Hebrews says this, By this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. That's not a compliment, folks. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Indeed, part of the reason why I became a pastor is because I knew too many people who had however many years they lived, they had one year of Christian maturity that many times. And this, this is a curse of the church in the United States, but it is also in part a shame on us. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Clearly, Jesus thought Nicodemus should have known what this whole regeneration thing was all about. But he didn't. Ignorance of spiritual truths is very often a moral failure as opposed to merely an intellectual failure. Ignorance of spiritual truths is very often a moral failure as opposed to merely an intellectual failure. If you can't or won't understand the doctrine of election, it may be because you don't want to stop gossiping. If you can't or won't understand the doctrine of the end times, it may be because you don't want to stop coveting. And yes, I picked two particularly hard things to talk about there. 
If you can't or won't understand the doctrine of salvation by grace, it may be because you won't stop, you don't want to stop being lazy in spiritual things. Now you must understand this. Are there difficult passages in doctrines? Yes, I just named two of them. Of course. Do I understand everything? Absolutely not. But very often, we, the church, do not understand most of the teachings of Scripture because we want to watch our salacious TV shows, because we want to miss our quiet times, because we want to cheat our, cheat our company out of time and money. Ignorance of spiritual truths is very often a moral failure before it is an intellectual failure. Most everybody in this room can come to a certain level because they have the mind to come to it. And if you don't, you need to ask yourself why. Ask forgiveness and ask him to reveal things to you so you can move forward. Now listen, we're all there. Every single one of us. It's not an issue of judgment. It's a call to action. As we will learn next time, the benefits of the Old Covenant are real. The benefits of understanding this doctrine are real. And we must not denigrate that which is obviously a major part of the plan of redemption for all eternity and that which is found in the Old Covenant. But we also must recognize the limitations of the Old Covenant. And both now and then, you and I need to submit to spiritual surgery. You see, spiritual surgery is what it takes, what, it, what happens when we say, Lord, I am yours. Move in me. And I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been or what you've done. Every single one of us has a next step to take. And by all means, don't disparage the law. There are many Christians in the United States who disparage the law. They, oh, the law is for somebody else. That has nothing to do with me. But to the, to the Jew, the law was a glorious blessing of the many passages we could look at. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. And the psalmist in 147 says, He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know His rules. Praise the Lord. He's praising God because Israel knows the laws of God though the rest of the nations do not. Now, the law was never meant to save. The law at any point was never to be that thing which brought salvation. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. And the expression of that faith has changed to some degree, but it has always been trusting God's promises for them in Christ. Those promises were just expressed differently. And part of it was living by the law in the Old Covenant. But the law was never meant to save. Instead, the law is what brings conviction of sin. 
It's the, Christ, it's the cross that saves your soul. And as we've already determined the last couple of weeks, we need to hear the bad news of the law before we can appreciate the good news of the cross. And I'm sorry, folks, we have one more week of this bad news stuff. It's coming next week. We'll do Revelate, or Romans 3, 1 to 20. Uh, I know we've been stuck in this bad news. Trust me, I've been preaching it. It's hard. But that's why we must submit to spiritual surgery. And we must allow this surgery to take place in our hearts. And as we do, we will find it less and less likely that we will fall into the problem that Paul addresses next. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that you, one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now here's where Lara Croft comes in. If this, this is aimed at a younger audience, I would, I would break a little more into this. But robbing temples? What? I, I kind of think that's a little funny. But these, these verses... <laughs> These verses, sorry, okay, back to preaching. Sorry, time out, time in. These verses have caused endless debate. What on earth does Paul mean by robbing temples? You know, are we this, this uh, lady who has a pistol on each hip and she's going in and shooting up all the bad guys? Well, no, obviously not. And multitude of options have been proposed. But I think what's going on here is actually pretty clear once you start wrapping your mind around what Paul is doing. The Jews, in general, were guilty of disregarding the Lord. And Paul accuses them of stealing adultery and sacrilege. I think that's what he's getting at in the robbing temples part. And all three of these, as the outsiders are looking at the Jews, they're going to say, <laughs> what kind of God is that? These people are stealing. These people are committing adultery. These people are disregarding their God. I mean, come on. What kind of idiot does that? And they're blaspheming the Lord because of the attitudes and actions of the Jews. Now, stealing and committing adultery is pretty straightforward. I don't think I need to go into that. But what is Paul getting at here in robbing temples? And I think to some degree, all three of these are true, but I think one of them is more true of us. A question to ask, are you benefiting from the idolatry of others? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 26, Moses specifically tells Israel, when you go in there and you see this pagan temple, don't covet the gold in the temple. You think to yourself, hey, this is cool. We wiped these people out and look, there's a pile of gold right here. We're going to go get this gold and, you know, break up the statues and we'll keep it. But Moses says, no, don't even look at that gold. That gold is tainted. Go bury it somewhere. Burn everything down and then bury the gold because you don't need it. Don't profit from idolatry. Now you bring that into the modern world and there probably is not a single area of commerce that isn't tainted by coveting 
or idolatry of some kind. But there are going to be jobs where you are just going to be wrapped up in all of this sin a little more closely than not. It's on your conscience, but I would suggest that perhaps what one application of this is there are jobs you probably really shouldn't be doing. Don't be a bodyguard in a strip club, for example. Okay, I want you all to remember that. Don't be a bodyguard in a strip club. And there's going to be jobs where you are going to have to appeal to the baser qualities of our culture to win, to win in these jobs. Now, I'm not judging, I'm not saying you can't be a good Christian if you're doing these things, but it's something to consider. And if you find yourself there, ask the Lord to give you a way out. We have a cool God like that. What else could he mean by this robbing of temples? Are you robbing God by failing to give him his due? Oops. That one might hit a little closer to home. Are you robbing the temple of God because you're failing to exercise self-discipline? Again, listen. Every single one of us has a flavor of sin. And your flavor of sin may not be my flavor of sin. You may be excited about doing this over here and you look at my sin and you think, what is that guy thinking? That's dumb. And the answer is, yeah, you're right. It is dumb. It's sin. It's suicidal. All sin is suicidal. It's drinking arsenic for fun. But the point is this. The point is that when we refuse to fight the temptation, when we refuse to exercise self-discipline, because it does take some of that, in addition to, obviously, God working in us, you might be saying that we're failing to give Him His due, and that might just be one of the ways Paul is saying don't rob temples. He's using extreme language I would never do that. I would never rob a temple in order to shine light on the fact that sometimes we are blaspheming God in this way. Of course, robbing temples may also be a particularly direct way of describing a life that just ignores God. Just ignores Him. Ah, you come to church on Sunday... You go, you do some good things. You say prayers when you eat at McDonald's. Which, if you're eating at McDonald's, you need to say prayers. <laughs> but it doesn't really change your life. It doesn't really do anything. Now, I would not presume to say that that is true of any one of us. But I would encourage you, go before the Lord and ask Him if that is true of you. And take care of business with Him. Paul, like his master Jesus, often used strong language to draw your attention and say, what, what could he possibly mean by that? And when you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, shine light on my heart with regards to this. As I've said before, we believe in a supernatural God. We believe in a God who is living and active right now. And if you ask Him to show you, He will. 
go to His Word and go to His throne and He will show up. Now, of course, the last option is if you take your cue from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, then you will soon quickly realize that this deeper understanding of the law as it applies how Paul is applying it here shows that every single one of us is guilty. Stealing, adultery, and just flat robbing God. And that is Paul's point throughout the whole chapter and a half going on here. But I want to address one more aspect of these three verses. Note the verbs that Paul uses. Do you teach? Do you preach? Do you say? Do you abhor? And there's two things we need to catch here. You should be teaching, preaching, saying, and abhorring. That should be true of you. That is a reasonable expectation for one who is walking with Christ. And these words point to something deep. They point to a fact that we don't always practice what we preach. And the result of that is, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of the God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And what Paul is saying to his Jewish uh, debate partner is he's saying, brother, you have less excuse than the Gentiles do. Christian, Sunday school veteran, you have less excuse than the adulterer out there in, who's never set foot in a church. We need to hear this because we need to be reminded that we need to go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. And we, we find it easy. Those bad people over there, and we get together with each other. Hey, aren't those people wicked over there? Don't you, don't you hate it when you see what those people over there are doing? Oh man, that guy, can you believe him? Paul won't have it. Paul won't have it. I need to go before the Lord and ask for forgiveness. If for nothing else, because I'm accusing that guy over there of being some dirty, rotten, terrible person. And I need to say, Lord, save me, a sinner. And he's going to hit us hard in the next verses. But he wants to say, you Jews, and I'm translating it a little bit, you Christians, you're no better. As we say in the, in the church rightly, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So go to the cross. Go to the cross now. Okay, you received Christ 30 years ago. Great. Praise Jesus. I am very thankful for that. But go to the cross today. Lord, forgive me. Strengthen me. Empower me. Work in and through me for your kingdom. Submit to spiritual surgery. 
If you are going to grow in your relationship with the Lord, you need to submit to spiritual surgery. You must recognize that you give opportunity to non-believers near you to blaspheme Jesus. Not going to lose your salvation. Not going to lose your salvation. But it does mean, I think this is a true aspect of what is going on when both the Old Testament and the New Testament command us to fear the Lord. You should be afraid of causing shame to the name in the eyes, the name of Jesus in the eyes of those around you. Now, fortunately, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Our God works in us. He works through us. He works for us to make these good works possible. And He makes our good works actually fruitful. Because as we learned again today, You can't make fruit happen. It needs to be God working in you and through you. Uh, My boys and I used to be members at the Santa Barbara Zoo when we lived down there. And on Fridays, I would give my wife a couple of hours off and she would inevitably work. You know, go to Starbucks, get yourself some tea or something, and she'd do taxes. You know. (laughs) But, But... But one of my favorite places in all those times we went to the Santa Barbara Zoo was the lion exhibit. And very often, you go to the lion exhibit, and one of the lions was standing right here. Literally, right here. Now, there was an inch of plexiglass between you and that lion. Because if that inch of plexiglass hadn't been there, I'd be running looking for a rifle and trying to get the heck out of Dodge, right? Because the cage is not for the lion's protection. The cage is for your protection, right? And if you use just a little bit of imagination, I, I liked doing this. I, and I would do it again today if I were at the, at the zoo. You imagine what you would be feeling if that plexiglass wasn't there. If it, if it just disappeared. Oh my goodness. And that, that fear that hits you right here, that's analogous to the feeling you should have when right in front of you is a temptation. And that temptation can bring blasphemy against God because no sin is in secret. All sin will find you out. And you don't want the name of Jesus blasphemed. And so you are terrified of that sin and run back to God. I really think that's part of the truth that's trying to be communicated when the Bible says, fear the Lord. Run back to Jesus. And He will receive you. Even if you already caved into that temptation, run back to Jesus. Because He will receive you. And cling to Him. Cling to Him tightly. And be afraid of going away from Him. Paul continues. And remember, he's talking about the inadequacy of the law to save us. Verse 25. 
For circumcision is indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in circumcision but breaks the law. Now listen, circumcision in and of itself, okay, this is going to be uncomfortable, ladies, sorry, men. Paul's writing it, not me, right? Circumcision is not a bad thing. Circumcision in the right context is a good thing. God commanded it, right? But depending upon circumcision to save your soul is a bad thing. It is taking that which is good and twisting it and making it that which is bad. And you've heard me say before that the Jews had four signs, four ways of showing the world we are different than you. One is circumcision, one is keeping the Sabbath, one is how they did their temple worship, and the last one was just the idea of living kosher. And the most important two for the Jews, if you read their literature in the first century, was circumcision and keeping the Sabbath. So that's what Paul talked about the most. As a distinguishing mark, I guess for those who look, circumcision would be very effective. Not sure how I feel about that. But Paul makes the point that if this person is an uncircumcised Gentile, but they know and love God's Word that person is going to be closer to God than merely the guy who got circumcised and now he wears kosher clothes and eats kosher food and goes to the temple and keeps the Sabbath. Because what is going on is that you need to be cut on the heart more than cut on the skin. Submit to spiritual surgery. My friends, it really does boil down to trusting the promises of God for you in Christ. Go to God's Word, intending to understand and obey it. Intending to understand God's Word and obey it. If you merely go to God's Word just to let the words crawl under your eyes, it may be that that's worse than not having read it at all. But better than all of them is to go to God's Word and say, Lord, meet me here. I need You. Open my eyes. Open my ears. Open, Lord, my heart so I could understand what You are saying in Your Word and I could be shaped to be the man or woman of God that You want me to be. This is what James is getting at in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He doesn't want you reading God's Word and he will give you excuses and temptations to avoid it. When you don't want to read God's Word, know that that is spiritual warfare. Period. Draw near to God, verse 8, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. 
For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You will not save yourself if you memorize this whole book. You will not save yourself if you memorize this whole book in the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. You will not save yourself if you can recite every single one of God's promises. Ignorance won't save you either. Instead, going to God's Word and wrapping our hearts and our minds in it will cause your thinking to change and you will understand God better. He will reveal Himself to you more. And as you know God better, you will therefore love Him and trust Him more. Ignorance of spiritual things, of spiritual truths, is often a moral failure as opposed to an intellectual failure. And you will draw near to God if you take the time and effort to do so. Why? Because it is the means that the supernatural God uses to bring you into fellowship with Him. You can cut away as much skin as you want, but you will forever find that you can't cut away enough. So go to the Lord and have Him cut away that extra skin off your heart. And he, the tool that he uses is God's Word. Go to it. The church throughout the history has developed catechisms. It has developed spiritual disciplines. It's developed schools and books and videos and YouTube channels to help you do exactly this. Some of my favorite are Desiring God, um, TGC, which is um, the Gospel Coalition, uh, there are lots of websites you can go to to learn. Um, find some preachers who preach the Word of God online and listen to them. Of course, I also want you to come Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of partial to these two preachers, but you know, that's, that, I don't know, I don't know. Turn your heart away from sin and towards the person of Jesus. It must be intentional and continuous. That is what it means to submit to spiritual surgery. And put yourself on the road, on this road, by your attitudes and actions that will find the grace of God. Both the unmerited favor of God and the power to accomplish kingdom purposes that meet together in helping you to become that man or woman that God has created you to be. Submit to His spiritual surgery. Lord Almighty, we cannot do this of ourselves, but we can use the means that you have given us. Open our hearts, open our minds, our eyes and our ears so that we can know you through your word and be changed by it, progressively made more and more like Jesus Christ for your glory, for our joy, and for the growth of your kingdom. Amen.